This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. This episode is brought to you by Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express Card. And we here on Savor are what you might call food explorers. It has been our actual job to go to cool places and eat, like, a lot of the food there. And then talk about it. And then talk about it into these microphones, which is a crazy dream job. Yes. Well, if you're like us and willing to travel to seek out new foods to try, you go with the Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card. It's for people like us who are in search of the next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hello and welcome to Food Stuff. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And it's time, friends, to talk about one of Annie's favorite foods and also yet another food that Lauren cannot really eat. Which is just a tragedy of tragedies in my <laughs> my humble opinion. I'm very sorry, Lauren. But we're talking about peanut butter. And yes, it's it's in my top five. It might be in my top three. It might be my number one. Wow. I love peanut butter. I always have an emergency jar of peanut butter. On my person. Oh, like like in the studio, like right now. <laughs> just, like in your- <laughs> I have those like little pouches ready to go. No, I have a jar. Um, I normally don't dig into it, but it's there, just in case. Just in case, because I have been, I've been in an emergency peanut butter situation. Oh, yeah, many times, especially when traveling abroad, where it's hard to find. Oh, absolutely. I always carry a jar of peanut butter. Good. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> It's just smart. Just be prepared, yeah. yeah. <laughs> People with peanut allergies, stay away from me. And speaking <laughs> of, peanuts plus peanut allergies is like, going to be a different episode, and I'm actually really excited to talk about that too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the little bit that I glanced through about how peanuts work was so fascinating that I had to keep stopping myself and going, like, you're talking about peanut butter today, Lauren. You can't look at this right now. You don't have time. I did the same thing. Focus. Uh, yeah, I was like, this episode is going to become a three-hour-long thing if we don't (laughs) rein ourselves in. Right. (laughs) Um, But if at the end of this you want to hear some more, 
Stuff You Missed in History Class, our sister podcast, did an episode on peanut butter a couple of years back in case you've, yeah, in case you're, you're like me and can't Just get, get enough. In. Yep. Can't <laughs> get enough. It's, it's called uh, A Brief History of Peanut Butter. Yes. All right. Peanut butter. What is it? It's amazing. End of podcast. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. That's, it's, this has been Food Stuff. Thanks to Dylan <laughs> Begana, super producer. Yeah. Peanut butter is kind of a, a butter of peanuts, if you will. <laughs> um, but I would like to start out with the peanut is not a nut. It's a legume. That is very correct. And it's kind of cool how that came to be. Yes, yes, it is It is true. The peanut is neither a pea nor a nut, um, though it is a lot closer to peas than to nuts, botanically speaking. It's in the family Fabaceae, as are peas, and in the specific genus and species, Arrakis hypogaea. And uh, hypogaea, okay, because peanuts grow underground. Mm-hmm. The, the plant itself looks like this small shrub, um, and it grows these wee, delicate yellow flowers that look a little bit like orchids. But those flowers, those flowers wither, and then instead of fruiting right there like most peas or beans do, they send out a little shoot called a peg. And, and the peg grows down into the ground, uh, kind of like a banyan tree, like, a, like the ropes off of a banyan tree, okay. and, uh, and forms under the ground a peanut. Um, a, a woody shell encasing one or more kernels. And these kernels are the plant's seeds, and they also happen to be pretty tasty. Oh, really? Hmm. Well, I mean, it's, you, you know that. <laughs> you, you're aware. <laughs> um, <laughs> pe- peanut butter, therefore, is uh, shelled, cooked, ground peanuts, um, usually flavored with a little bit of sugar and salt and with maybe a little oil added to stabilize the mixture. Because even though peanuts do have a high oil content, if you want to homogenize the, the thing, then you're going to create an emulsion with some hydrogenated oil. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's sweet and savory and salty. And as Annie is, is like making little like, like Twitter painted faces over, she's like sort of mooning over the idea of it over there. Um, it's intensely craveable and snackable. It's also a huge nostalgia item on its own for many Americans and a common ingredient in some other cuisines around the world. Yes. Remember my peanut butter ice sand from oh, forever right. ago and the listener wrote in the recipe on how to make it. I still think about that, sky. Thank you. <laughs> really changed my life. <laughs> but how how does one make peanut butter? Which you can make your own peanut butter. But industrially. Industrially speaking, um, to get peanut butter, you first have to obtain a crop of whole peanuts in their shells. You crack those shells open, grade them out for color, defects, spots, broken skins. The ones that don't pass muster go on to, uh, to be made into peanut oil, but the ones that do are then dry roasted. Uh, dry roasting means that no additional oil is added during the process. They're simply heated to around 320 Fahrenheit, that's about 160 Celsius, for about 40 to 60 minutes until they're done. Yeah. <laughs> um, and done is when a, a photometer, a, a light meter, says that they've gone from their starter color of white or red to the appropriate color of brown. Huh. I love that they're, yeah, it's yeah. color-coded. Color um, they're then cooled to stop the cooking process. The skins are removed by either heat blanching or water blanching. Uh, both processes kind of have their downsides. Heat blanching removes some of the antioxidants that make them nutritious. Water blanching retains the peanut hearts, which are sort of bitter. Mm, you know, mm-hmm. so depending on what you're going for. Yeah. Um, you then grind the peanuts, either in increasing grades of fineness or for chunky style um, with like an end addition of those less fine bits. Yeah. Um, or by removing a rib from the grinder 
and think of the grinder like a like a giant screw that okay. has a bunch of uh, of ribs wrapped around it that are sharp and pointy. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you remove one of those ribs from the grinder but leave the rest of them, then you'll get a naturally uh, slightly creamy, slightly chunky combination. Mm. Mm-hmm. And then you pack it. Uh, one of the enemies of peanut butter is oxygen. More on that later. So bakers take steps to keep working peanut butter at pressure, and uh, and they vacuum seal it during packaging. In the U.S., anyway, peanut butter must be at least 90% peanuts, unless you want to label it imitation peanut butter or otherwise, like, adulterated peanut butter. Right. Which, I mean, you know, companies can turn into marketing opportunities, but but no one really, like, wants to do at the get-go. Right. Unless you're going for a totally different product. Yeah, like that powdered peanut butter. Sure. Different thing. Yeah, or, you know, a, a chocolate peanut butter. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. And and this is, like Annie said, totally easy to do at home. You, you just roast your own peanuts in the oven, grind them in a blender, food processor. Um, towards the end, you throw in uh, some sugar, some salt, some oil, any other flavorings you want. And, and you just keep grinding it until it's peanut butter. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's lots of recipes online. Um, as usual, the kitchen.com, that's a kitchen spelled without the final E, has a pretty good one. So Yeah. Yeah. Totally give it a try if you're if you're so inclined. Yeah. Um nutrition wise, it's a it's a little bit contentious about how nutritious peanut butter is for you because it is really high in fat. Yeah. But both good fats and bad fats. It's about 70% fat in terms of like calories per portion. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also a good source of protein though and has some dietary fiber, usually a little bit of added sugar. So so it will fill you up and it will keep you feeling full for a while. But because of that high fat content, it's really best when paired with other sources of uh, fiber and of protein. Mm-hmm. Yes, because your body doesn't want just butter. It wants it. Well. But it does not need it. Well, your brain wants it. It makes your brain feel better than I think it makes your body feel. For me, anyway. Well, Eventually, I'm like, can I have a salad? Can I please just have a salad? (laughs) Uh, Peanut butter does also have a good amount of several vitamins and minerals, including vitamins E and B6, uh, niacin, folate, manganese, phosphorus, magnesium, and copper. So, Mm. you know, good, good stuff in there. Um, there's an article on HowStuffWorks.com called What Would Happen If I Just Ate if, if I Ate Nothing But Peanut Butter for the Rest of My Life. Yeah. And it brings up these very points. It does. Um, <laughs> so, you know, like, heed your serving sizes. Yeah. Don't eat just peanut butter for the rest of your life. You're going to get scurvy. Yeah. <laughs> My brain was like, but. But. What a great way to go. What a great way to go. <laughs> we, um... As you probably heard us speak about, we recently took a road trip, um, Dylan, Lauren, and I, super producer Dylan, and um, I went through, we recorded audio pretty much the entire way up. Yeah. And I went through and listened to the whole thing and made, like, topics, possible topics, breakout episodes that could uh-huh. come from what we were talking about. Yeah, yeah, little little add-on segments or, or bonus episodes. We talked about peanut butter for probably 10 minutes. <laughs> And super producer Dylan used to eat a uh, half a jar of Skippy a day, essentially. <laughs> oh right, I had forgotten about that story. Yes. Oh, we'll have to we'll have to pull up the audio for that. That's, oh, we will. Um, maybe that'll be our peanut bonus episode. 
Yeah, her peanut bonus episode. Right. And I um, I have a rule called the evening out where I only let myself even out the top of the peanut butter. That's what I do with ice cream. The evening out. <laughs> it's a thing. Um, but there has been um, a blind taste test. I think it was Thrillist did a blind taste test of like 10 types of peanut butter. And um, they did find that they liked Skippy Natural the most. And as someone who loves peanut butter, I've actually never had Skippy brand. Oh, really? So now I'm like going to get some. Wow. What's what's your preferred peanut butter? It's funny because I feel like I have an evolution. I used to like crunchy <laughs> Peter Pan and then I went to smooth Jif and now I'm in some kind of weird like I guess uh, fancy peanut butter territory. Ooh. It's pretty expensive. But I have a jar of Jif and a jar of the fancy stuff. So Jif for like the desperation the fancy stuff for when I'm really going to enjoy my peanut butter. <laughs> um, okay. All right. Um, uh, let's let, let's run some peanut butter numbers. Yes, peanut butter numbers. Um, the U.S. is actually not the largest producer of peanuts. That would be China and India. In the U.S., Georgia, our, our state of Georgia that we are in right now, is the largest producer. 49% comes from Georgia's peanut belt, which is a little little south. Um, over half of the peanuts produced domestically do end up in peanut butter. Huh. Making one 12-ounce jar takes 540 peanuts. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. However... In 2012, U.S. peanut farmers churned out over 6.1 billion pounds of peanuts. So we've got quite a lot of peanuts. Yeah. Peanuts and peanut butter are a big thing in the U.S. <laughs> Not one, but two U.S. presidents were peanut farmers, which out of 45 is pretty impressive. Oh, sure. Um, Thomas Jefferson and Jimmy Carter. Oh. Should mention, if you've got that bingo card, get it out because this episode has a lot. <laughs> Around 94% of American homes contain a jar or more of peanut butter. That's me. Um, <laughs> and I, a side note, I was sort of kind of dating this dude once while I was working in Belgium. And one night I was feeling homesick and he made me a meal of what he considered traditional American foods. And this included mac and cheese and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And it was really quite lovely. Oh, man. Um, and it's expensive over there. It's expensive. Yeah. In most places I've been outside the U.S. Um, and something similar happened when I was in China after I ran out of my traveling jar of peanut butter <laughs> and discovered a tiny jar was going to run me about $20 USD, which I bought it anyway. But then another intern ate my jar of peanut butter. I still think about that, John. Oh, no. I haven't forgotten about it. Oh, my goodness. And um, because of my upset, an expat <laughs> friend of mine <laughs> threw a, it was the 4th of July, and he made sure that there were peanut butter and jelly sandwiches there. And also pizza, spaghetti, and meatballs, hamburgers, hot dogs, and mac and cheese. So That is a very American spread. Yeah, it really is. I hadn't really thought about it before, but... Yeah. It was it was a wonderful experience. Yeah. <laughs> the average American consumes about three pounds of peanut butter a year, amounting to an annual 700 million pounds. 700 million pounds of peanut butter. To put that sort of into perspective, from 2013 to 2014, we bought over 578 million jars of peanut butter. That's about 1.8 jars per person. Collectively, all of that peanut butter is worth about $800 million. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're wondering how much of that ends up in peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, well, before graduating from high school, most American children will have had somewhere around 1,500 PB&Js. 
That sounds that sounds low to me, to be super honest. That was my go-to for years and years and years. Yeah, me too. And while peanut butter is seen as American, we are certainly not the only country that enjoys it. In Canada, folks might eat it for breakfast. In Haiti, you can find freshly made peanut butter called mamba from street vendors. In, Nether- in the Netherlands, you can find it under the name of peanut cheese. I really enjoy. Uh And in Saudi Arabia, where it's growing in popularity largely because of expats in the oil industry. It's still not big in Europe, though, and this is not for lack of trying on the side of the American peanut farmers. The average European eats less than a tablespoon per year of peanut butter. Huh. I guess they've got their Nutella, your speculos, your Maramite, other things. Sure. Outside of peanut butter. And there's all kinds of peanut butter and peanut butter and jelly-related products. Oh, yeah. And Reese's peanut butter cup-related products. Pretty much any kind of dessert you can imagine. And also you've got Van Gogh Vodka's PB&J flavored liqueur. Whew. Yeah. As sort of a publicity stunt, one researcher made perhaps the most expensive peanut butter product, a diamond. What? It, it wasn't an edible diamond, or I mean no more so <laughs> than any other diamond is. Uh, But yeah, a team of German scientists who were studying how Earth's mantle works ran a number of experiments creating diamonds in the lab. And for one of these experiments, at the behest of a local TV station, they used peanut butter as the, like, carbon-rich source material for creating the diamond. It apparently didn't work, like, great, but, like, it kind of – the whole experiment sort of fell apart due to the amount of um, off-gassing that was going on. But it didn't fall apart. Before that made before they made a diamond. I I I will tell you, if I were ever <laughs> imprisoned for stealing like a piece of jewelry in a museum, it would be a peanut butter diamond. I know that just deep in my bones. I I think we all know that deep in our bones, Annie. <laughs> well, <laughs> we've got a lot of peanut butter history for you. We do. But first, we're going to pause for a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. This episode is brought to you by Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express Card. And we are what you might call food explorers. We are so lucky that a part of our job involves traveling and trying a lot of the food where we go to travel and then coming back here and telling all of you good listeners about it. And through that, we have discovered some amazing dishes. Sure, yes. Like, I had never understood what poke really could be, and it is delightful. It is stunningly good. hmm Yeah, which we had a lot of on our trip to Hawaii. Uh, another thing from their passion fruit I now look for in literally every menu that I read. I'm like, yep, that one has passion fruit. Going for it. And then all of the moles, and especially the green mole that you heard us talk about recently that we had from in Las Vegas. In Vegas, yeah. Oh, or just steak basements. Who doesn't love a steak basement? Exactly. <laughs> 
Well, um, if you are like us and you're willing to travel to seek out new foods to try, you go with the Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card. It's for people who, like us, are in search of the next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. From football playoffs to basketball madness, TCL Roku TVs are the best way to stream your favorite live sports. With all the biggest sports channels, a sports zone with all available games in one place, and apps like iHeartRadio with sports podcasts such as The Herd with Colin Cowherd. Cheering on your favorite team has never been easier. A big screen TCL Roku TV offers premium picture and sound quality, so you'll feel like you're right in the action. Find the perfect TCL Roku TV for you today at Amazon.com. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. Now it's time for some peanut butter history. Yes, and some abbreviated peanut history. Extremely abbreviated. Oh, totally. Mm-hmm. While the peanut plant goes way back, pottery suggests possibly as far back as 3,500 years ago, but probably even further back than that, like 7,600 years ago, peanut butter is relatively new. Mm-hmm. Both the plant and the butter most likely first came from Peru or Brazil, roundabouts there. In Peru, the Incans offered peanuts as sacrifices to the gods and would bury them with mummies huh. to help them through their the afterlife. Oh, through their passage. Oh, yes. Goodness. Native South Americans were grinding up peanuts in ancient times. In Brazil, the indigenous tribes made a drink out of ground-up peanuts and corn. That sounds so good. I had I had a drink like this in Japan from yeah? a vending machine, and it actually was really good. Huh. You had to get over, like— for me, when I take a drink, I'm expecting something probably, like, sweet or crisp. And this was, like, a very buttery, savory experience. Oh, huh. In a... In a can. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but it was good. Huh. The ancient Incans and Aztecs roasted peanuts and ground them up to make a paste. So depending on how you define peanut butter, they were closing in already. Oh, sure. Um, when the Spanish arrived to the New World, they found peanuts as far north as Mexico. From there, the Spanish brought the peanut back with them to Europe, and with the help of traders and explorers, the peanut made the journey to Asia and Africa. Portugal promoted the spread of peanuts in Africa because at the time, sub-Saharan Africa did not have much in the way of an oil plant. Peanuts are about 50% oil, so. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's from Africa, not South America, that the peanut arrived to North America in the 1700s through slave ships from West Africa sent to the British colonies. Peanuts were most likely fed to slaves to survive the journey. Um, And they weren't the easiest crop to grow in North America at the time. And most of what they could grow, they allocated to their livestock or to the poor. And there's someone we got to talk about in this conversation because uh, his name frequently comes up when talking about peanuts. Sure. And uh, that is George Washington Carver. Once a slave, Carver used his newfound freedom to become a successful botanist, even in the face of all the obstacles designed to keep African Americans from success. And we're talking meeting with world leaders like Gandhi and Roosevelt level of success. Mm -hmm. Poor Southerners all over benefited from his innovative crop 
rotation system, primarily rotating big crops like tobacco and cotton out for lesser grown crops like peanuts. Because uh, those first two things deplete the soil, but peanuts give a lot back to it. Exactly. Doing this involved a lot of educating people about all the things peanuts were good for. Don't you want to grow them? They do all of this. <laughs> and Carver came up with over 300 ways to use up peanuts, both food-wise and industry-wise, from peanut paint to peanut laxatives. He imagined a world where you could fuel cars with peanuts. You could make a veal substitute with peanuts, asparagus substitute with peanuts, and peanut orange punch. But out of all of those 300 things... Peanut butter was not one of the things he invented. Huh. Yeah, it's frequently attributed to him, but he did not did not invent it. He did have a recipe for peanut paste in a 1916 bulletin similar to what the Aztecs and Incans had been doing. Carver's called for pulverizing roasted peanuts in a meat grinder, but not quite peanut butter yet. Um, and Ken Jennings of our sister podcast Omnibus wrote an entire article about this if you're interested, of all the things he came up to do with peanuts, which oh, yeah. is really It's overwhelming and terrific. Yeah. But if Carver didn't invent the peanut butter, who did? Who indeed? Who indeed? You're not going to believe this. But some people credit John Harvey Kellogg. Kellogg? Yes, that Kellogg. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, villainous Kellogg. <laughs> one of my historical nemeses maybe invented one of my favorite foods. My brain was like, this cannot be. <laughs> oh, no. This cannot be. In 1895, he patented a method of using raw peanuts to make pretty much peanut butter as a non-chewable protein source for the wealthy attendees of John Harvey Kellogg's Western Health Reform Institute, or for patients without teeth, or for both. Um, but history suggests it was around before that. I think I can wipe my brow. Yeah, yeah, because a whole year before that. Yes. In 1894, a businessman out of St. Louis by the name of George Bale produced and commercially sold the first peanut butter. Oh. oh. But some historians dispute it, Lauren. Oh, no. But still, I'm, I'm going to cling to the, the cling, hope. Cling away. <laughs> cling away. Um, so yeah, he's a contender. Some of the others that you might see, other inventors you might see credited for coming up with peanut butter, um, is uh, Marcellus Gilmore of Canada. Patented a peanut paste made with roasted peanuts milled between two hot surfaces in 1884. Another St. Louis peanut butter innovation came from Dr. Ambrose and his patent for a peanut butter making machine. So there's a lot of, a lot of names in the mix. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Whatever the case, peanut butter could be found at St. Louis's 1904 World Fair, where it caught the eye of companies Beechnut and Heinz, ah. who then made peanut butter available nationally. At first, peanut butter was a luxury food, served in tea rooms along with pimento cheese, watercress, and celery on crackers. Which is really funny because I remember when I was reading that article, the author was kind of like, can you imagine? But to me, that sounds like, I think all of those pairings are kind of still around today. Common in the South, anyway. Yeah, and like peanut butter and cheese, peanut butter and celery, that's a pretty popular snack. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, but it didn't stay relegated to the wealthy for long. Um just three years later, in 1907, companies were producing 34 million pounds of peanut butter. And for context, in 1899, that number was 2 million pounds. Oh, wow. That so, is boom. Yeah. a drastic jump. Mm -hmm. 
The next step in peanut butter's evolution came in 1922 with Joseph Rosefield and his discovery of a method to prevent peanut butter from separating and going rancid. To do this, Rosefield converted peanut oil into a saturated fat. This both kept peanut butter from separating and it also didn't stick to the roof of your mouth as much. But it did sacrifice on some health, depending on who you ask. Mm -hmm. In 1928, he licensed this process out to a company behind a peanut butter brand you've probably heard of, Peter Pan. Ah. Tins of peanut butter because peanut butter was sold in metal tins before the wartime required all the metal. Uh, and uh, before, you know, plastics were a thing. True, yes. Boasted on the front, improved by hydrogenation. Huh. In 1932, Rosefeld started producing his own peanut butter that he called Skippy. Ah. As the American economy became more commercial, peanut butter became more accessible for lower-income families. This is when more sugar was introduced to the mix to appeal to kids. And speaking of sugar, let's talk about Reese's peanut butter cup. <laughs> is is this a thing that like you got you got flack for from a very young age? Yes, but I I I went with it. I said that I was like the heiress of the company <laughs> and kids believed me. Because silly kids. <laughs> and a part of me hoped inside that maybe I really was. Yeah. But uh, alas. They haven't called you yet? Not yet. Maybe this is, they're going to be like, there <gasps> she is. There she is. We've been looking oh. for her forever. <laughs> that- One can know. It's like my princess diary <laughs> dream. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. In 1928, Reese's Peanut Butter Cup made its debut. It showed up on shelves. And here is a, a nutshell or a candy shell story of how that happened. Uh-huh. Former Hershey employee H.B. Reese founded Reese's in 1923. And of note, he was the father of 16 children. Or 10, depending on your source. Or possibly it was 10 surviving children. But either way. A lot of children. Oof, yeah. And this is why he was looking to make some money by getting in the chocolate business. Oh, okay. Um, when they first entered the market in 1928, Reese's peanut butter cups were sometimes called penny cups because they only cost one cent. And they were kind of an instant hit. According to family legend, the over-roasting of the peanuts, um, they made their own peanut butter, was the secret. Hmm. Reese oversaw the construction of a 100,000-square-foot factory on Chocolate Avenue in Hershey, Pennsylvania. We have got to visit Hershey, oh, Pennsylvania. Oh, goodness, Yes. It wasn't until 1933 customers could buy the cups individually because before that they came in an assortment or in bulk for store displays, but people specifically wanted the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. Huh. The company churned out other things too, like raisin clusters, or at least they did until the scarcity brought on by World War II forced them to focus solely on the cups, their most successful product. And it helps that peanut butter wasn't rationed and automation made production easier and cheaper. One story goes, the situation got so dire, the sheriff came looking for Reese for unpaid bills and found that Reese had absconded from his farm. Oh, wow. The consolidation of product paid off, but Reese died suddenly of a heart attack in 1956. Once seven years had passed, six of Reese's sons sold the H.B. Reese Candy Company to Hershey's Chocolate Company for $23.5 million in 1963. The Reese's children also got a 5% share in the company, Worth today about $1 billion. Oh. Ooh, $1 billion. Um, Milton Hershey was a big fan of Reese's. There was a, a rumor that he had a secret stash in his desk. Uh-huh. And he saw the company before Hershey's bought it as a customer instead of a competitor since the cups used Hershey's chocolate. Ah, okay. Reese and Milton Hershey are buried meters apart in the Hershey Cemetery. Oh. Yeah. 
Reese's have branched out beyond peanut butter filling since Hershey's acquired them, but have also spawned Reese's Pieces in 1978, which do have a different filling than the cups. Mm-hmm. Reese's Puff cereal. It's Reese's for breakfast. My parents <laughs> never let me try that. Never had it. Um, and Reese's Cups with Reese's Pieces in them. And I have a friend who loves these, and w- w- the first time she showed them to me, she cut them as if it was a fancy like piece of chocolate. She cut it down the middle, uh-huh. and she showed me the inside, and she said, it's like looking at a damn sunrise. <laughs> it was beautiful. <laughs> oh. These days, Reese's are the most popular candy in America, but they're kind of niche most everywhere else. Japan is experiencing a surge in Reese's popularity, though. There, like most international countries, the cups don't come with a preservative that has been found to do some damage to DNA and is a precursor to stomach tumors, TBHQ. The U.S. allows small amounts since doses of the allowed 0.02% or less do not seem to cause any negative side effects, and that's how much is in um, Reese's Cups because it's the allowed amount. Um, May 18th is I Love Reese's Day. (laughs) This came about by a fan petition of, I believe, 500,000 signatures. Sales of Reese's comes out to an annual 500 million. And yes... The film E.T. did pretty much save Reese's Pieces. After the movie, sales went up by 60%. And I read one stat that said sales of Reese's products overall went up by 300% after wow. E.T. came out. And yes, M&M was Spielberg's first choice. And Mars, the company behind M&M's, turned him down. And if you're curious, there are way more orange ones. The breakout is about 50% orange, 25% each yellow and brown. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> When uh, the new Harry Potter movies came out as a kid, I would make chocolate frogs and I would use the same type of peanut butter filling used by Reese's, which for me, it w- uh, for a homemaker, it was essentially peanut butter with pe- with butter and powdered sugar. Oh, sure. Mixed Blended. in. Yeah. yeah. Mm. <laughs> the, uh, the scientific reason, by the way, that, um, that people love Reese's so much, Reese's Cups so much, is that it's a combination of textures, of uh, the slightly chunky peanut butter with the smooth chocolate. And so that that novel combination or, or that combination of two novel sensations makes your brain go, oh, what, what, what? Ooh, yes. Do that again. More of this. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, there was a – I found a, an article that was basically asking why is there – why has no one else been able to compete with Reese's? Because um, there really is. I didn't think about it, but there's not really a competitor at all. Nope. Mm. Good job, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Call me. <laughs> I'm here. I'm waiting for those royalty checks. <laughs> Roll in. I'm pretty sure that's how that works. Um, okay, so Reese's peanut butter cup story aside, over. Let's uh, step back a bit to 1923. Okay. Heinz brand peanut butter was the first to include hydrogenated vegetable oils on the ingredient list to solve that separation thing, but also to make it more spreadable and longer lasting. With three big brands boasting now more spreadable peanut butter and sliced bread available as well, peanut butter sandwiches, peanut butter sandwiches, were a popular food during the Great Depression. But does that mean, is it? Is it peanut butter jelly time? (laughs) Could it be? Is it? Is it? It It is! is. (laughs) The first written recipe for the peanut butter and jelly sandwich appeared in the 1901 edition of Boston Cooking School magazine of culinary science and domestic economics. Still not quite, though, because it used peanut paste as opposed to peanut butter. 
it wasn't until World War II that those peanut butter sandwiches got the addition of jelly. It was included in the soldiers' rations, as was peanut butter and bread. Just makes sense. Soldiers returned to the U.S. after the war and wanted to recreate some of the foods they'd had abroad. And voila, the PB&J. The standard PB&J, by the way, is two tablespoons each of peanut butter and jelly. In the U.S., the most popular flavor is grape, boo, um, followed by <laughs> strawberry. But when you think about it, everyone probably has a really personalized favorite, crust versus no crust, diagonally sliced, crunchy versus smooth, and I find it kind of lovely and adorable. And uh, Super Producer Dylan and I were discussing before we started podcasting our, our sandwich of choice, and they were very personal and funny to me. Um, so listeners, you should send in if you've got a, yeah. a preferred way of Let a, us know. A PB&J. By the 1950s, thanks in part to big companies like ConAgra and Procter & Gamble, peanut butter was a billion-dollar business. However, not all was well in the peanut butter world. Ooh. A survey conducted in 1959 found that Jif peanut butter was only 75% peanuts. Ah. The rest was hydrogenated oil and sugar. The survey was all part of the FDA's ongoing struggle to rid the shelves of inferior peanut butters. Legally, peanut butter went through kind of an intense definition process. So to keep the oil from separating, producers wanted to know if they could get away with adding glycerin to the mix in 1940. And the FDA was kind of like, meh. And to specify meh means that they responded with the term peanut butter is generally understood to mean a product consisting solely of ground roasted peanuts with or without a small quantity of added salt. Basically, you could add it, but you'd have to note on the label that you did prominently. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So the FDA proposed that to be recognized as peanut butter, a product had to be 90% peanuts along with additional sweeteners in 1961. They actually wanted the peanut requirement to be 95%, but found that the average American consumer preferred a sweeter, more easily spreadable product. Mm Mm-hmm. Jif, Peter Pan, and Skippy entered the regulations fray soon after. Over the next 10 years, a decade, complete with a 20-week-long public evidentiary hearing with nearly 8,000-page-long transcript, the peanut butter hearings waged. One attorney joked that they, quote, put many lawyers' children through college. (laughs) Most of this whole thing revolved around a difference in a proposed peanut content of merely 3%. What? In 1971, yep, an entire decade later, the FDA won out, requiring a 90% or more peanut content, coming out to 55% less fat. Oh, wow. The process took so long and was so difficult and so expensive, the FDA was like, nope, never again, and decided (laughs) to focus less on defining foods and more on safe and transparent food labeling. Without this shift, mayonnaise may never have come to be. Oh, wait, wait, wait. First, we have this John Harvey Kellogg thing. And Mm -hmm. now mayonnaise was able to be created because of peanut butter? My food nemesis. (laughs) My hero food led to my villain food. I have so much, so much to think about. (laughs) But isn't that how the story goes? Yeah. The Avengers save almost everyone in Sokovia, but not that one dude's family who tears them apart in Civil War. My brain is almost all peanut butter, popcorn, and Marvel and Harry Potter. I hope, like, two people understood that reference. But I got it. Yay, Lauren. It was just for you, Lauren. Thank you. <laughs> All right, peanut butter. I guess I would rather have peanut butter in the world and deal with mayonnaise. Yeah. Yeah. 
but I do need to think on things. You do. Um, and while this whole thing was going on, Smuckers introduced a new product called Goober in 1968. And I laughed when I read this, and then I realized it's still around. Oh, um, yeah. If you don't recognize the name, Goober is the combo of peanut butter and jelly in one jar. Yeah, usually like stripes. Yeah. Yeah. You can find them in strawberry, grape, and chocolate flavors. Mm. Okay. Here's another fun side story. Yeah. Um, can't, can't mention peanut butter without mentioning Elvis Presley. No. Apparently not. <laughs> Legend goes, in 1976, one Elvis Presley was entertaining some friends from out of town at his home in Graceland. And these friends worked for the Denver, Colorado Police Force. They got to talking about a favorite sandwich of theirs back in Denver, and Elvis did that rich person thing and was like, you know, that sounds good. Let's go. And they hopped on his private jet sometime <laughs> around midnight and left for Denver. The couple that owned the restaurant that made the sandwich that these hungry fellows were talking about met them in the hangar, and they all spent three hours eating sandwiches washed down with champagne. What a life. Um, the sandwich was called the Fool's Gold Loaf, and the price tag would run you around $65 at its highest. And what was it, you ask? A hollowed-out loaf that was stuffed with an entire jar of peanut butter, a jar of jelly, and a pound of bacon. Oh, my goodness. That's a, a well, lot. And then you, like, slice it like like a, like a peanut butter, jelly, and bacon geode? Oh, man. It looked—I mean, it looked like a sandwich— You'd get at Subway like a six inch, but it was stuffed. Oh, wow. The hollowed out and stuffed. <laughs> um, nowadays, when you see an Elvis named sandwich, it's usually peanut butter, bacon, and banana, I find. He was pretty well known for loving peanut butter and banana sandwiches. Um, but that's in general where it comes from. Although his mom said he'd eat peanut butter, bacon, and banana sandwiches pretty feverishly, according to one cookbook. I've actually never had one, but I mean, it sounds just nice. Oh, it's pretty good. There's a. Um, a burger joint rounds about Atlanta called the Vortex. Oh, right. They have a lot of sandwiches that um, when you read, you're like, that's stunt, terrible for you. Stunt sandwiches, yeah. Uh, but I want it nonetheless. <laughs> um, and they have a, like, Elvis burger, and it's like a burger, but, but then it's with... got peanut butter, bacon, and banana. Wow. Yeah, it's good. I believe you. I mean, it's one of those things where, like, three bites in, you're, you're like, oh. uh, well, I've had enough. <laughs> I really liked it while it lasted. <laughs> But this has got to come to an end. Um, and speaking kind of of health concerns, <laughs> health concerns around peanut butter caused a sales slump in the 80s and 90s. But they picked back up again in the recession since it's a long-lasting, healthy-ish, cheap food stuff. Kids like it. However, with the dawn of the new millennium and more and more artisanal and organic peanut butter hitting the shelves, it's... Uh, it's a whole new world, kind of. Eh, peanut butter's just, it's there to stay, but also doing a lot of experimentation right it, now. It's for everybody. There's, there's a market for anything that you're in the market for. It's for everybody that doesn't have a peanut allergy. Well, ab- yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's for people that, it's, that can eat it without dying. There you go. Um, these health concerns didn't stop the opening of Manhattan's Peanut Butter & Co. in 1998, it closed in 2016, but they used to have all kinds of fancy takes on the PB&J, and you can still find the menu online if you're just kind of curious, like I was. The peanut butter jelly time meme viral flash clip made a splash in 2002. I'm not going to sing it, but you've probably seen it. I'm sure you know that you, you know what we're talking about. If not, I guess Google it if that's how you want to spend the rest of your life is having that in your head. Yeah. 
In the early 2000s, increasing diagnoses of anaphylactic peanut allergies caused some school systems, mostly in the U.S. and Canada, but in other spots worldwide, to totally ban peanut butter and other peanut products. Research, by the way, has found that total bans don't really work. Um, schools with bans have the same number of EpiPen emergencies as schools without bans. But establishing peanut-free tables in lunchrooms does work. Mm. So research to look at if this is a cause for concern in your community. Yeah. Starting in 2007, there were a number of, of uh, large-scale outbreaks of salmonella due to peanut butter and other products containing it. One of the largest of these, uh, traced to ConAgra Foods brands Peter Pan and Great Value, sickened between 600 and 700 people across 47 states and resulted in what the Justice Department said was the highest criminal fine ever in a food investigation, $11.2 million. Whoa. Uh, salmonella are, are bacteria that can infect your guts and cause all kinds of unpleasantness. Uh, they're passed along through feces and can, can hitch a ride on meats or plants via contamination during processing. Uh, for, for a chicken breast, that might be contamination with chicken guts during butchery. For peanuts, it might be like a leaky roof and infected bird droppings getting into the factory. Cooking foods to recommended temperatures, usually over like 130 degrees Fahrenheit, that's 54 degrees Celsius, will kill salmonella and basically all other pathogenic or disease-causing bacteria. Um, and that's part of why peanuts are generally roasted before being made into peanut butter. Yeah. I mean, the other reason is that it makes them tasty. But Yeah. Yeah. However, if the bacteria get into peanut butter after that roasting part of the process, it, it's like game over, man. It's, it's bad news. Um, uh, fats tend to protect these microbes from the acids of our stomach that might otherwise kill them. So... Uh, food safety experts generally agreed that that $11.2 million fine in that Peter Pan case was a really good thing as it hopefully put them and other big manufacturers on their toes. Yeah. So, hey, buddies, let's watch out for this one. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that because uh, I believe there's a big Peter Pan factory in Georgia. Yeah, it was from one of the Georgia facilities. Um, basically, as far as I'm aware, all of the major outbreaks were from Georgia facilities. But that's not terribly surprising because we're the largest producers. Yeah. So. Yeah. I remember it, though. It's like, oh, yeah. There was a huge recall. Yeah. It, it, uh, the news broke in, like, 2007, and they recalled all of their peanut butter that had been made back to 2004. Yeah, that's massive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, these days, snack and recipe-sized uh, portions, individual cups of peanut butter, are pretty common in grocery stores, tapping into those convenience markets. Yeah. And, of course, researchers are trying to build better peanut butter with better peanuts. Newly developed varieties are more disease-resistant, uh, stay fresh longer, and have a higher percentage of the uh, good fats. Mm-mm-mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's verging on science, but we have not quite reached our science portion yet. Not yet. We will do after a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. 
And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. This episode is brought to you by Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. And we are what you might call food explorers. We are so lucky that a part of our job involves traveling and trying a lot of the food where we go to travel and then coming back here and telling all of you good listeners about it. And through that, we have discovered some amazing dishes. Sure, yes. Like, I had never understood what poke really could be, and it is delightful. It is stunningly good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which we had a lot of on our trip to Hawaii. Uh, Another thing from their passion fruit I now look for in literally every menu that I read. I'm like, yep, that one has passion fruit. Going for it. And then all of the moles, and especially the green mole that you heard us talk about recently that we had in Las Vegas. In Vegas, yeah. Oh, or just steak basements. Who doesn't love a steak basement? Exactly. (laughs) Well, um, if you are like us and you're willing to travel to seek out new foods to try, you go with the Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card. It's for people who, like us, are in search of the next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great Thank conversation. You. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. So, scientifically speaking, peanut butter is pretty cool for a number of reasons. Its high fat and low water content mean that it is an unfriendly environment for bacteria and molds to grow in, even for prolonged periods hanging out at room temperature. And by low water content, I mean like really low, like peanut butter is only about 2% water. The Oils in it, the unsaturated oils in it anyway, will start to go rancid after a year or so at room temperature, but that's generally all you really have to worry about. And this this is going to be my sidebar about rancidity. (laughs) Yay! Rancidity sidebar. That sounds like a band. (laughs) And I want to go to their show. I'm pretty sure I've been to that show. (laughs) All right. Uh, Rancidity is what happens when unsaturated oils interact with oxygen. The the oxygen breaks down some of the lipid compounds, turning the, the tasty, kind of bright, fatty flavors into these gross, sour, bitter, fishy, or, or even soapy flavors. Yeah. Bad times. And this process can be kickstarted by exposure to air. Uh, of course, oxygen is in the air. But also uh, heat, light, and humidity will speed it up. And it's not just when an oil is, like, old that um, – Have you ever noticed that kind of off fishy smell that you start to get when you use the same pan of oil to fry like a whole bunch of batches of food? Mm -hmm. Even if it's not fish, 
Yeah. You, you could get that fishy note. And that's that's rancidity. That's the heat of the oil starting to make the oil uh, – the, the heat of the pan starting to make the oil go a little bit rancid. Mm-hmm. But – Peanut butter resists rancidity better than many other products uh, because they've got a lot of vitamin E, which is an antioxidant, which means that it can help block the oxygen from breaking down those lipid molecules. And and don't don't panic. Uh, slightly rancid oils like those in old peanut butter can still be just perfectly okay to eat. Um, though some of the same compounds that smell and taste weird can also break down some of the vitamins in the product, making it less nutritious. And there have been cases of, like, very rancid oils causing digestive upset. I mean, basically, if it smells bad or tastes bad, don't don't eat it. Yeah. Pretty decent, decent advice, except for, like, my favorite cheeses. <laughs> True. And beers and maybe pickles and a lot of other things. But in the case of maybe... Peanut butter. Oils, yes. Yes. Uh, to prevent the rancidity of peanut butter and other oil-based products, including oils, um, store them tightly sealed in a cool, dry, dark place. You know, like a cupboard. Oh. Yeah. Like maybe not like right over the stove. Yeah. 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 Um, storing peanut butter in the fridge will extend its lifespan, but it's not necessary. Yeah. Um, Especially if you're going through it, like in yeah. less than a year. I was about to say, Dylan was like, how much do you think you go through? I go about through two two to three jars a year. And I was like, pretty sure I go through at least one a month. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I have to worry about this. Yeah, no, 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 no. You're you're absolutely fine. Um, but yeah, um, the, the whole rancidity issue is part of why manufacturers will add a little bit of those saturated fats in to, um, to, to A, uh, get, get the emulsion going where it's going to be a smooth, consi- consistent product in the jar without um, doing that separation of oils that you see in natural peanut butters. Yeah. And B, to, um, to, to help offset um, the, uh, the, the tendency of those unsaturated oils that are naturally in peanuts from going rancid. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, peanut butter's shelf stability and high energy density from all that oil content also make it a great candidate for emergency nutritive care. Uh, During the 1990s, in the midst of of hunger epidemics around the world, the French Institute of Research for Development and food manufacturer Nutriset developed what would be the first peanut-based, ready-to-use therapeutic food, um, or RUTF, which is sort of like an MRE, a meal ready to eat, intended not as a ration, but for treating severe acute malnutrition. And it's a packet of, of basically like super peanut butter, um, ground peanuts, sugar, and oil, plus milk powder for protein and added vitamins and minerals. And these, th- this stuff has a leg up on other therapeutic foods because it doesn't require preparation or water. You could just hand them out to families who can use them at home. And they pack about 500 calories into this really small unit. Wow. If you've ever seen a photo of a, of a hungry kid eating from like a brightly colored packet since the mid-90s, it was probably a peanut-based RUTF, um, though other legumes like uh, like chickpeas and lentils are used. And organizations like UNICEF distribute a lot of it, some 35,000 metric tons per year, which is enough to treat about 2.5 million children. It's not the best long-term plan because it's, it's expensive to do that milk powder. Um, you know, it's foreign aid based, which isn't helping people um, in the long term. And it's better for, for emergencies than as a permanent nutritional supplement. But, but it's pretty great that it exists. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I we didn't really go into this, but from what I have read 
doing the research for this and also kind of outside because I, I do love peanut butter. So I'll read pretty much any of like <laughs> peanut butter. Um, <laughs> there's no real difference. If peanut butter says organic, um, like health-wise, there's at least not a lot of proof to back that up currently. We still we, we still need a whole episode about organics and what that term does and does not mean yeah. um, in the United States because it uh, – it means that certain kinds of treatments can't be applied to plants, but yeah, others still can. Yeah. But if you like, I mean, it's usually more expensive, um, the organic kind of peanut butter. But I do have an organic kind of peanut butter that I just prefer. So, you know. I mean, from the manufacturing process, probably not from, yeah. 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 Just taste-wise, I like it. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I like a lot of peanut butters, though, so. <laughs> This has been a very a delightful episode for me. I, I'm sorry, Lauren. You did get to try a little bit on that oh, sandwich. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I can I, I can have a little bit without it upsetting my stomach too much. It's it's just it's an intolerance, not a not an allergy. But so I can I can have a little. That um, it was so good though. Like I had forgotten because I, I've been having like almond butter and cashew butter stuff yeah. like that, sun butter, and it's not the same, y'all. It's not. Oh, it's delicious in its own right, but it's not the same. It's not the same. Um. That story I told earlier about the guy in Europe who who did that like American themed meal for me, my um, I was living with a another exchange student who, um, had a very severe peanut allergy. Oh yeah, and I wasn't allowed to have peanut butter in the house. Oh no. Um, so I have my emergency jar, and I remember having a moment of like, what do I do? Oh no. Like sad music is playing. <laughs> I ate all that peanut butter. I left it at my office. Oh, there you go. But um, that was another thing exacerbating my <laughs> my desire for peanut butter. <laughs> you literally couldn't. Yeah, I couldn't. Oh man. Yeah, this has been a really fun one. And there's a, I definitely really do want to come back and talk about peanuts and peanut allergies. And I really could do a whole. Just let me have a peanut butter side like, <laughs> side podcast. Any kind of peanut butter related thing. <laughs> I'll talk about it. <laughs> Reese's, get in touch with us. <laughs> right? Come on. I I narrowed that down to you. I was like, Annie, this is just kind of related to peanut butter. You need to chill out. Um, Self-contained. Exactly. Uh-huh. But I couldn't stop myself from putting it's some of it in story. there. It's a good story. It's a good story. It really is. And speaking of good stories, this brings us to Listener Mail. Not sure how that went. That was no. Okay. (laughs) So Ashley wrote, I just listened to your pasta episode and I want to share with you how I like to eat my pasta. Similar to Annie, I prefer to have my pasta somewhat without sauce. However, the older I get, the more I'm willing to experience my noodles smothered in sauce. (laughs) However, here's how I prepare it. Once the noodles are made, I put butter on them to get them all slippery. Then I add salt and pepper to taste. Once that is done, I will put the tiniest bit of sauce on them, like literally a teaspoon worth, and then mix the sauce into my noodles so the noodles have the tiniest bit of redness to them. Mmm, mmm, mmm. So delicious. The butter adds that delicious fat taste to this, and it's literally the best thing ever, all caps. It's hard to make a teaspoon's worth of pasta when I make it for just myself. But when I have a bunch of people over or I'm visiting my parents, I'll eat my pasta this way. This sounds delicious. Uh, I I did, I used to, like, 
I would scoot the noodles along the verge of the <laughs> along the outside borders oh, of the sauce uh-huh. and get a little tinge, just uh-huh. a little hint. And uh, I did love that, so I think I'm gonna try this out for sure. Oh, good. And again, thanks to everyone who wrote in. Yeah. Who's like I do this too, and also to the people who wrote in who are like, "You're a monster," but it's okay. <laughs> I appreciate that. Absolutely. <laughs> um, Alyssa wrote, "Hi, my name is Alyssa, and I come from Guatemala." Apologies right off the bat because my Spanish is okay, but I may or may not butcher some of these words, Alyssa, and everyone else from Spanish speaking everywhere. Anyway, um, I listened to your tamales podcast a few weeks ago and found it very interesting. Tamales are a very important part of our culture, and we have different varieties depending on the region they are made. I want to tell you a little bit about my favorite Guatemalan tamales. Patches. Uh, The masa is made out of potatoes with the traditional chicken or pork filling, a little spicy, and wrapped in plantain leaves. These are mostly eaten on Thursdays. Jueves de patches. Hmm, clearly. Uh, Tamales de arroz. Uh, These are the most traditional made for celebrations. The masa is made out of a mixture of rice and corn, or maybe just rice, which gives the tamales a kind of fluffy texture with uh, the traditional plantain wrap. Tamalitos de chipilin. Uh, traditional corn masa mixed with chipilin, which is a delicious small green leaf and wrapped in corn leaves. These are made without the meat filling. The uh, Guatemalan corn leaf tamales are traditionally bigger than the ones from Mexico and tied over the end to avoid spilling. Pachitos, traditional corn masa, uh, chicken filling with a ricotto uh, sauce and wrapped in corn leaves. These are served with a special tomato sauce, a dry crumbled cheese on top with a little bit of onions and celery for garnish. Oh, those sounds so good. There are many, many more. Some are filled with black beans. Some are sweet. Uh, Yes, they add chocolate and plum raisins, or the masa is made sweet without any filling. Not a fan, but people love them. And finally, we also include these tamales, actually the ones made out of the traditional corn mesa, and make different dishes out of them. Please, please, as a favor, I want to ask you if you can give a shout out for people to raise awareness and funds for the people that have been affected by the recent volcano eruption in Guatemala. Lots of people would really appreciate it. Absolutely, yes. Uh, if you Google um, Guatemala Volcano Relief, then it will the, the, the internet will kindly hook you up with, uh, with stuff that you can donate to or do in your area. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, those, oh, those sound so good. I'm, I'm hungry so again hungry. now. I'm uh, so hungry. Well, I think we're going to go find some food. Yes. Oh, goodness, yes. Um, but thanks to both of them for writing in. Mm-hmm. If you would like to write to us, you can. Our email is foodstuff at howstuffworks.com. We're also on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at foodstuffhsw. Also on Instagram at foodstuff. We hope to hear from you. Thank you, as always, to super producer Dylan Fagan. Thank you to you for listening. And we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressings, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com.
Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for.